as you can see here, I have some nursery rhyme books. These are books that my daughter reads or we read to my daughter. Um, not, not these ones yet, not novels. But nursery rhymes are one of those things that when you are a kid, you hear a lot of nursery rhymes. You grow up and you have them like memorized, you know them, and then as you get older, you start to reflect on some of those nursery rhymes and you realize, oh, that doesn't sound too comforting. Like, what, what are those words actually saying? And, you know, as I start reading, you know, some of these nursery rhymes to my daughter, I'm like, this one is literally about cats, like, killing each other and attacking each other, and these cats look demonic. And so, you know, I, I start looking through these books, and I'm like, uh, probably won't read that one to my two-year-old. Um, this one here says, Taffy was a Welsh man. Taffy was a cheat. Taffy, ta Taffy came to my house and stole a piece of meat. I went to Taffy's house. Taffy was in bed. I took a marrow bone and beat him on the head. And, like, it shows pictures of animals, like, you know, like, just doing horrible things to each other. And so, like, you know, I've made note of which ones I'm going to read to my daughter and which ones I'm not going to read. This one um, says, as I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Every wife had seven sacks and every sack had seven cats. And anyways, it's just like weird things. And you guys probably know some of these. I feel like there's one more. Every wife had seven sacks. Every sack had seven cats. Every cat had seven kits. Kits, cats, sacks, and wives. How many were going to St. Ives? I'm really bad at math. What? <laughs> we're moving on. Sorry. <laughs> but I do feel like you should be up here reading them because your accent makes them sound better. Fee, fi, fo, fum. I'm going to read them like Naomi. I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. <laughs> like, you know, some of these are just so weird. So messed up. And so I will tie that into what I'm talking about. But likewise, a lot of us grow up hearing Bible stories. We hear these heroic stories of men like Daniel in the lion's den and Moses and Adam and Eve. And, and then as we grow up and reflect on them or start to read the Bible actually more for ourselves and unpack some of these stories, we realize uh, these aren't as like, you know, soft and pretty and comforting as maybe I once thought, you know, with my little felt board in Sunday school. And we start to realize, wow, there's actually some like really horrible, grotesque things that happened in the Bible. And so you start reading about, so again, like with people going to Alpha and new people being in our church, there's been a lot of questions that have come up. And one person asked me recently, should I be reading the Old Testament? Because when a lot of people become Christians, we give them Bibles, and generally we give people uh, a New Testament Bible, a New Believer's Bible. And so I said to this person, yes, like definitely read the Old Testament. And I'm already anticipating like the questions that are going to come out of that. 
you know, because the Old Testament in many, in many ways does sound different. The stories can seem more violent and just harsh than the New Testament. You read about things like mass murder and there is abuse and there's rape and all these different things that you would never read to your kids and things that you would never even you know, watch yourself if they were in rated R movies. And so the question that we're just going to address or not fully address in any way, but start to unpack today is why does God seem so angry and wrathful in the Old Testament and then so loving and kind in the New Testament? Or how do we reconcile these differences, all of the violence that happens in the Old Testament with the God that we see in the New Testament? And so this is a question that people often ask. Maybe you've asked it yourself, or maybe people have asked you, or they will in the future. And it's an important one. The Hebrew Bible and its overt violence can be very difficult to understand and even harder to defend. It's something that the atheist or people who aren't Christians would say, you know, this is why I think that the God of the Bible is cruel and evil. And if you believe in him, like, you're evil too. And I don't, I don't want to follow that God. Or, or they would say, you're brainwashed if you somehow want to follow this kind of God. So this is an important um, issue for us to address. So I want to just start by giving us some helpful tips or what I hope can be helpful when we do come across some of these passages so that we don't, you know, just read these verses or these stories and then throw out the whole book because of these things. So this, uh, I guess, message today is a little more like in depth than what I, how I usually talk. So hopefully you can stay with me. I should have told you all to bring notebooks, but I didn't. So our first random tip for just like interpreting the Old Testament is description versus prescription. And so there's a difference in the Bible. You know, sometimes we can read these things of, you know, men having many wives or people being abused and people being killed. And we can think our immediate thought is, why would this be in the Bible? Why would God approve of this? Why would God say this? Why would God allow this? But a lot of the things that happen are just historical accounts. The Bible is often describing things that have happened, which history has been very horrible and very violent. And so there's a difference between the Bible describing something and God actually prescribing something or giving instructions to somebody to do something. So it's important that we keep that in mind because God doesn't always approve of these things that are happening, but the Bible is telling us the truth, just what has happened. The second uh, tip is perspective change. Sometimes we can approach the Bible with um, a closed mind and with ideas that we already have, opinions, and we can miss some things. And so we have to be willing to have an open mind and be willing to see things differently. So, for example, we can read about, you know, these people, these heroic people in the Bible, such as David. This was a man who committed adultery. He slept with a woman um, who wasn't his wife. She was married to somebody else, got her pregnant. Then he made sure that her husband got killed in war as well. And so this isn't, a, you know, he's doing these really bad things. And yet the Bible says this is a man, God says this is a man after my own heart. And so we can read things like that and say, 
what kind of God is this that would call someone like this a man after my own heart? We can read about Moses. He killed a man. He tried to cover it up. He stuttered. He basically said no to God when it came to public speaking. And yet God used him to rescue millions of uh, people out of slavery and perform all these incredible miracles. And so, again, like, God, why would you choose somebody like this? Samson, one of the judges in the Old Testament, he was incredibly gifted by God and he had superhuman strength, which is what we often remember him and know him for. But he was also really violent and proud, and he broke all kinds of rules, and um, he committed all kinds of atrocities, just really horrible things that like, I couldn't even come up with, like tying all these foxes' tails together and putting torches in them and sending them into a community to destroy these people. Like just these horrible things that have happened. And so we can read these stories of these people and just think, God, like I don't want to serve a God that would you know, allow things like this to happen or would use people like this. But if we're willing to have a little bit of a perspective change and recognize that God didn't use these people because of their sin, he didn't use these people because of their moral failures or because of their mistakes, but God used these people despite all of those things. It can actually be really comforting and encouraging because it's like, wow, God, if you could use somebody like this, if you could use somebody who killed somebody, who broke all these rules and did all these things, then God, you can definitely use me. And it actually shows us that God is so patient and he's so kind and he's willing to give second and third and fourth chances to all of these people that we see throughout the Bible. So perspective change is just sometimes good to read the Bible with an open mind and not throw our own ideas and opinions onto the text. Progressive revelation. We also have to be careful not to take one or two Bible verses just out of context and isolate them. The Bible is intended to be read as a whole. It's uh, entire, you know, progressive revelation showing us who God is and what he's like and what his characters, what his character is like. And so if we read, you know, one story or take one sentence or one word and say, God, you are evil based on this, that's not how the Bible's intended to be read. God is given, you know, there's all different names that he goes by. There's different attributes, eternal. He's known as being jealous. He's known as being a create, the creator, redeemer, king, judge, strong and mighty, provider, deliverer, shepherd. He's the one who saves. He's the one who heals. He's all of these different things. But one verse, one story isn't going to encapsulate all of that. Like we're talking about God of the universe. And so he uses the whole Bible to give a progressive revelation of who he is. Yes, God is love. The Bible says that, but he is also just and he is also fierce. The fourth one, which I feel like is kind of a given, and I'm going to walk down here and get my water, is that we need to do our research and so if we're reading things in the Bible that we don't understand right away, that's okay. We live in a very different um, culture, very different time period than when this text was written. Even the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're, I'm just probably distracting you all because you're watching me trying to open my water. So I'm just going to drink it. <laughs> I actually hate when preachers do that. <laughs> 
they're like standing there struggling to get something open and you're not even listening to what they're saying because you're just like, open the water, just drink the water. So it's important that we do our research because there's no way with our 21st century Western mindset that we can read these texts from thousands of years ago and fully comprehend what's going on. There's different laws in place. There's different rulers. There's different governments. Even in the Old Testament and New Testament, things are very different. There's different groups of people. People, you know, groups die off and new groups come to exist. And so we have to do uh, research as best we can to try and figure out, you know, what's the context here? Is there any legitimate reasons why these things might be happening? All right. So we're going to jump into a few examples in the Old Testament of violence. And the first one is a super well-known horrific event called the flood. And so this is a story, again, we often read, we often hear about when we are young, when we are kids, and then we grow up and we think, like, that's really, like, you imagine, like, people, animals, all these things, like, dying. It's just, like, what kind of God would do this? Like, wipe out almost the entire human race. And so in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 6, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So this is, yes, this event was horrible. But this is a God who doesn't just all of a sudden get fed up and unleash his wrath. Like, he doesn't just lose his temper and just burst out in anger. Like, this is a God who was deeply grieved. The New King James says that he was grieved in his heart. And the NLT says that it broke his heart. He was deeply troubled by all of the evil things, the wicked things that people were doing to one another. And so this actually shows us that God isn't just passive or indifferent to violence and to the way people are being treated and how people are being violated. We live in a time when people are calling out for justice. You know, we want justice to take place, but if we want a God who is just, he also has to be committed to judgment. And the story actually goes on to say that Noah found grace. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so it actually shows us that God relented And God said, you know, it's another one of those second, third, fourth chances. And he made a way to redeem humanity and redeem creation and save us. And that's why we're here today. Another example, we're just going to randomly pluck some verses from Jeremiah. says, and this is actually written to God's people, the Israelites, his chosen people who he loved. says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. In this place, I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hands of those who want to kill them. And I will give their carcasses as food to the birds and the wild animals. So again, we can read, you know, particular verses like this and just think, oh my goodness, like God is just so cruel. And he's vicious, but he doesn't just do these things on a whim. And so if we read more into the text, verses 4 and 5, it actually explains why. 
says, for they have forsaken me and made this place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to the gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it even enter my mind. So these people didn't just turn their back on God and start worshiping other gods. They were killing innocent children. They were actually building altars to these false gods and sacrificing their children alive in the fire because that's how they thought and were convinced that they needed to worship this false god. And God is saying, this is so evil. This is so horrible that I could never even think of something like this. And so he has to put an end to it. So that's actually, I mean, I don't know. I, I personally think that's probably a good reason to warn people and tell them, I'm going to wipe you out unless you stop doing these things. Another example of a troubling Old Testament passage. These are God's words in Numbers 31. It says, Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man, but save for yourselves every girl who has never slept with a man. So, Again, reading these verses, it is obvious, yes, there is violence happening here. There is killing happening. But it also seems like there's genocide and almost like rape. Like these women, women are being taken and given to men. And so just a few points about this, these verses in particular. Yes, God is taking vengeance and he's taking vengeance on people known as the Midianites. The Midianites and other surrounding nations at the time were constantly at war. And they were warring in horrible, brutal ways. They would kill people in just really slow, painful ways. They would kill people by doing sexual acts. And just horrible. And so God is telling them, put an end to this. Kill them swiftly and humanely. This has to end. And I, I know that's not still super comforting, but it's part of the picture. Also with these verses, there is justice for the oppressed. It was the marginalized people. It was the most vulnerable people and the young people in these nations who are being abused. And so this would include things like sex trafficking, um, child sacrifices like we just read about, and it was spreading. They were actually influencing the Israelites and influencing other nations to do these things as well. <clears throat> I'm definitely no expert in warfare, but in general, when it comes to a lot of the mass killings and things that we see in the Old Testament, it was either one, self-defense, or judgment for human rights violations. And God laid out, you know, different rules and regulations, even for going to war. Um, in Deuteronomy 20 and 21, you can read some of them. For example, Deuteronomy 20:10, it says, "As you approach a town to attack it, you must first offer its people terms of peace." And so, it's not like God would always just secretly, you know, out of nowhere attack people. He would always, you know, give warnings and he would often, you know, offer people terms terms of peace. This is your chance. Stop what you're doing. Turn from your wicked ways. And a lot of the time people just would not. And so God would have to bring judgment to end these horrible acts. Again, with these verses, numbers, the women 
they didn't have much going for them according to the laws in their land. You know, the Midianites, the Canaanites, they would have never allowed these women to own land or to work or to earn an income. And so if all of a sudden all of the men are taken out, literally killed, these women would actually be left worse off if they were just left to themselves. And so Deuteronomy 21, there's actually guidelines for how then to bring these women into the community of the Israelites and into their homes. And they were allowed time and space to grieve. And they weren't taken in as concubines. They weren't taken in as slaves. They were actually taken in as wives. And they would gain legal status. They would have you know, human dignity and they would be given provision. And so I know this doesn't maybe give 100% uh, comfort, you know, to some of these violent verses and stuff that we read, but we have to understand there's more going on than God just all of a sudden attacking and killing a bunch of people. We like to think that we're better today than we ever have been, and that like all throughout history, we've just been slowly progressing in terms of human rights and in terms of women's rights, but that's not the case. Under the Mosaic Law, which is the Old Testament, women and men were treated basically as equals. In some cases, women had more rights. But then you jump into the New Testament where people lived under the Roman Law, and women were profoundly disfavored. They were considered second-class citizens. And then you jump to thousands of years later today, and we know that women are still fighting for equal rights and equal pay and things like that all around the world. And it wasn't until 19, you know, around 1920 that women were even allowed to vote in Canada. So we kind of have to get rid of this idea that back in the Old Testament, back when people, you know, first existed and stuff like when, you know, under the Mosaic Law, that women had no rights and we've been slowly progressing from then and you know, like all these things, it has, that's not necessarily been the case. Yes, in some nations, things definitely were super backward and messed up, but not according to God. Not, that's not how he wanted it to be. Another example of violence, uh, two cities that a lot of us know for kind of being an example of God's judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19, we read that they are utterly destroyed. There's like burning sulfur coming down from heaven. It's horrible. But in Ezekiel 16, we read the reasoning behind this judgment. It says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things like sexual acts, abuse, rape. They did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. And so passages like this are kind of a wake-up call for us because they cause us to realize, wow, God doesn't just take, you know, hold to account those who are violent or, you know, do these evil things, but he actually holds to account people who are indifferent and people who do nothing. And so for us in the Western culture, like overfed, unconcerned, you know, with things that are going on in the rest of the world, like some of these verses, you know, 
yes, they're scary, but they're speaking to us today as much as they were back then. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus constantly reaching out and going after those who are oppressed and those who are marginalized and those who are overlooked. And God was just as concerned for those people back then as he is now. One more example in Deuteronomy We see one of the instructions given to judges, and it says, Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And so sounds really harsh, like, wow, God, you know, where is the grace? But if we're willing to have a little bit of a perspective change, this shows us that God actually took murder very seriously. In these verses, God isn't distinguishing between women, men, children, slaves. Um, This actually shows us that God valued life, no matter who you were, no matter what gender you were, no matter whether humanity or people considered you a slave or not. In other ancient cultures, if you killed somebody's slave, you would just have to pay a penalty because they were considered property. But to God, every single person is considered fully human. And so did God command his chosen people, the Israelites, to um, wipe out certain people groups at certain times in history? Yes. But it had nothing to do with ethnicity. It had nothing to do with, you know, God just all of a sudden on a whim wanting to kill people. It had to do with judgment for sin. These people groups, which I should have had on the screen, but I don't. Um, Amorites, Arameans, Moabites, Canaanites, all those ites that we read about, they had some horrific practices. And so I have references for all these if you want my notes later. But as mentioned, they sacrificed children. They participated in bestiality, sorcery, demon worship, and orgies. Male and female prostitution took place right inside the religious temples where idols were worshipped. And so God didn't want these evil, horrible practices to spread. He didn't want the Israelites to start intermarrying and mingling with these people. God wanted to protect his kids from these horrible things, just like most of us would want to protect our kids from evil people and evil practices. But that's not to say that God didn't hold the Israelites to account as well. God shows no partiality, which we talked about last week. And so God judged these people the same way he did the other nations. A few weeks ago, Pastor Bruce talked about the discipline of the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God discipline Israel when they willfully and knowingly sinned and turned their back on God and worshipped, you know, false idols. God would chastise them. But when Israel would repent, God would love on them. He would forgive them. He would embrace them. And we see this in in the New Testament as well. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes or chastens those he accepts as his child. So, It's not like God is completely different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God still disciplines us the same way that he did back then. Um, Ten Commandments. Let's look at these real quick. 
we aren't, I won't read them all, but when we think of the Ten Commandments, we think of a list of rules and regulations. We're like, oh, typical God, you know, telling us all the things that we can and can't do. But in the New Testament, these aren't abolished. Um, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. So if we can just put the Ten Commandments back up there real quick. The first, I think it's the first four commandments are all about loving the Lord. Making him the center of your life. Making him priority in your life. Loving him with everything you have. And then the other ones are all about loving people. Loving your neighbor. And so it's important to remember that Jesus didn't come to just abolish and get rid of the Old Testament and all these laws. He came to be the perfect fulfillment of those laws and show us how to perfectly live out all of these laws. So, yes, in Jesus we see maybe a, a more complete picture of who God is, one that we relate to more. He's in the flesh. He looks like us, but he's not a different God than what we see in the Old Testament and all throughout the Bible. The truth is that the Old Testament laws and regulations, all those ceremonies, all the crazy things that we read about, they are really just intended to keep sinful people at bay and show us that we are so far off from a perfect, holy God. And we can actually never measure up on our own accord, by ourselves, through our own works and through our own deeds. It's only through grace. It's only through Jesus. It's also worth mentioning today that Jesus said a lot of harsh and uncomfortable things as well. It's not just the Old Testament. We've, we see people hear his teaching and they see him. They're looking at him. They see his miracles, but they hear his teaching and they just say, no, I can't follow this. And they just walk away. Um, Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. He described it in great detail. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Here's one quote from Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. It says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so... If Jesus talked about hell, you know, if he if he knew of hell, if he believed in the reality of it, and he didn't say anything, yes, he would be a very evil, horrible person. If he did not warn us about it, but over and over again we we see and hear Jesus not shying away from this topic because he knows that it is real, it is reality, and humans were never intended to go there. Hell was supposed to be a place for Satan and the fallen angels. He, humanity was never supposed to go there. And so Jesus constantly warns us and tells us about this because he doesn't want any of us to end up there. He wants us to turn to him, put our faith in him, so that none of us will ever have to experience that. Here's another quote from a New Testament author, Paul. 
But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. (laughs) And so the New Testament isn't all just love and rainbows and butterflies. God is still the same. And the Bible says that. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're going to end, or start to end, on more of a positive note. Let's talk about God's love for a minute. It's not hard to convince people, and I obviously I love talking about God's love. If you want to hear more about love, listen to last week's message. It was Valentine's. We talked all about love. But the God of the New Testament is obviously loving. We see Jesus constantly reaching out to those who are not loved. We see him saying, let the little children come to me. We see him saying, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. He's hanging on the cross, dying, and he says, God, forgive them, for for they don't know. They don't understand what they're doing. And so we see this love, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, for whoever believes in him shall not perish. God never wanted any of us to perish, but have eternal life. But what about the Old Testament? Does the Old Testament speak about God's love? Yes, absolutely, over and over again. And we don't have time for me to go into all of those verses right now. So just a few. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's in Exodus. In Psalm 86, you, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, it says, Our ancestors refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in the rebellion appointed a leader in order to return, in order to, return to their slavery. So, so it's saying, these people totally turned their back on you. They rebelled. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them because of your great compassion, and you did not abandon them in the wilderness. And so, yes, the Old Testament talks about God's love a lot as well. In fact, the whole Bible we actually see is like this love story where God creates people. He makes them in his image, and then these people rebel and they turn from God and they follow their own evil desires. And then God says, stop what you're doing. Come back to me. Let me help you. Let me heal you. Let me love you. And he constantly warns them and off, you know, reaches out his hand to them and then ultimately makes a way. He says, okay, I'm going to come down and do a sin myself and die on the cross. And then, you know, throughout the Bible, we see groups of people and individuals, sometimes they turn back to God and sometimes they don't. And God is still saying the same thing today. Come back to me. Stop following your your own ways. Look to me. Let me help you. Let me love you. How were people saved in the Old Testament? Exactly the same way as people are saved now. In Romans, or sorry, in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, Old Testament, Genesis 15:6 says, And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. And so Abraham was not saved because of works. He was not saved because he measured up to these standards or did all these certain ceremonies and things. He was saved by faith. 
in Romans chapter 4. I can't remember if we have this up there or not, but this is um, a New Testament passage. It says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And then he goes on to quote, again, somebody from the Old Testament, King David. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. And so salvation, whether you're living thousands and thousands of years ago or you're living in the New Testament or living today, salvation only comes by faith in our Lord. It doesn't come by being the best person or doing all these good deeds. Those things are good to do. Yes, we should do them. We should love people. We should help the oppressed. We should help um, those who are marginalized. But ultimately, salvation only comes by faith. Some final thoughts, and maybe we'll get the band to come back up. The Bible says, like I, like I already mentioned, that God never changes. In James 1 and Hebrews, we see that God is the same. And I think if we look deep enough into the Old Testament and the New Testament, we will see that God is the same. He is loving and he is forgiving, but he's also fierce. And he is loving, but he's also judging. And he is patient and merciful, but one day he will right all of the wrongs and he will bring judgment. And every single one of us will stand before him someday. Um, these books here, Chronicles of Darnia, some of you guys have probably heard of them, read them. Maybe you've seen some of the movies. If not, definitely recommend it. Um, this one, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is actually shows us a picture in here of... Um, so there's a lion named Aslan, and this is a savior figure. In many ways, it's a picture of Jesus. Definitely watch the movie if you haven't seen it. And these kids in this book are asking about Aslan. They're asking who he is, what he's like. And so they're talking to two beavers. There's animals that talk in this story. And so this is what it says. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan? A man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the great king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought, I thought that he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And the God that we serve isn't necessarily safe. He's God. He's powerful. He can do whatever he wants, but he's also good, and he's loving, and he's kind, and he's patient, and he's also fierce. 
God is definitely beyond our understanding. And sometimes when we read the Old Testament and when we read these stories and these verses, we just shake our heads and say, God, I don't understand. God, why would you do this? And we have to be careful that we don't start to think that we're better than God and that we don't put ourselves on this pedestal thinking that we are morally better, that we know better, that our judgments are better because that's called pride. That's what, you know, started this whole thing. That's what Lucifer did. He, he put himself higher than God. And the last verse I'll read is from Romans chapter 11. It says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions, his judgments, his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. And so there will come a time when evil and violence and suffering in our world is finally dealt with once and for all. But right now we live in this little window of time where God is still saying, come back to me, repent, turn from your own wicked ways. Let me love you. Let me, let me forgive you. Let me make a way for you. And so I would like to end tonight by praying if there's anybody here who you don't know if you were to stand before God someday soon or tonight. You know, we're all going to stand before God someday, but right now your knees would be knocking. You would be scared. I think we all would be, honestly, no matter who we are. But I want to pray for us because there's no way I can talk about, you know, horrible judgments and wrath of God and also the love and forgiveness of God and then not pray and make sure that we're all right with God tonight. And so I'm going to just say a prayer. And if you'd like to just agree with this prayer, just echo it in your heart or maybe say it quietly where you're sitting. God, you are beyond our understanding in many ways, but that's why you're God. And we thank you that you recognize that we couldn't live up to the perfect holy standard of who you are. And you made a way for us. You came yourself and paid the price for our sins. And so God, if there's people here today, including myself, God, who just follow our own desires and have turned from you, God, right now, as best we can, God, we choose to turn back. We look to you. We pray that you would be the center of our lives again. Help us to know you. Help us to grow in relationship with you, Jesus. 